1966 was a year of change in the comic industry, with Marvel losing two major talents, the amazing Steve Ditko and Daredevil's Wally Wood, both for different reasons. Now, what became of them after Marvel in this year? That's what we will find out in this week's Comic Book Historians podcast. I'm your host, Bill Field, and I'm joined, as usual, with my partners in villainy, Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. Guys, how are you this week? Really well. Thank you, Bill. Hi, Bill. Well, it's great to have you guys, as usual. Now, we're going to start out this week with a little talk about Tower Comics. Jim, you know a lot about this era. You want to expand on this for us? Wally Wood was dissatisfied with the, the pay structure and Stan Lee's way of doing the Marvel way on Daredevil, so he left and made a deal with publisher Harry Shorten to create a whole comics line called Tower Comics. It was edited by Wally Wood, who could not keep up with Shorten's goals in terms of publications, and eventually they also brought in the way underappreciated Sam Swartz from Jughead Comics, who took over a lot of the editing except for the books that Wood was actually working on. And from 1966 until 1969, produced 20 issues of Thunder Agents, several spinoffs such as Dynamo and No Man and Undersea Agent, as well as Tower doing, for Swartz, the Tippy Teen books, which are also fantastic. So the combination of Tippy Teen and Thunder Agents and its spinoffs created three years of alternative to DC and Marvel. And wasn't Steve Ditko also involved in some of these titles? I think Nomad, for sure, and some of the others. There's a long list of fantastic artists that Wood was able to bring aboard. Dan Atkins, Gil Kane, the fantastic Reed Crandall, Steve Skeets, Chick Stone, Sikowski, Paul Reinman, Manny Stallman, a wealth of talent working there because it was well-funded. What brought it to an end in just three years, Jim? Do you know? They went out of business. So they were well-funded until they went bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, basically. It wasn't a cancellation that the books weren't working or anything else. It wasn't sales, although that may have been an aspect of it, but it was simply that Tower Comics went out of business. The superhero glut that we've been referring to here and there, Tower Comics was a subsidiary of a greater corporation called Tower Publications that were producing paperback books and erotic fiction aimed at male readers. So there is a feeling from them that they wanted to experiment with the superhero business that was doing so well and had Harry Shorten create this Tower Comics under their umbrella. That's an interesting corporate decision of people jumping onto the superhero bandwagon. While he would be able to take advantage of that to create his own line of superheroes, it was his way out of these mainstream companies like DC and Marvel at the time. You know, another odd thing about Wally Wood, you guys know I know a little bit about animation. I've been in the industry for a while, but Wally really wanted to break into animation because a lot of his compatriots were doing that and actually making a lot more money than people in comics. But he never quite made it, and yet his style and his small kids and oddkin type of things, they would have lent themselves so well to animation. And a lot of people think that Ralph Bakshi ripped he and Von Bodoff for Wizards. And if you look at Wizards, 
there's an awful lot more of Wally Wood in there, I think, than there is Von Baudet. And Von Baudet is the one that you hear about all the time. So I think that's kind of funny that other people were noticing Wally doing artwork that would lend itself but Wally himself couldn't get elected to garbage handler or anything for the animation industry, and I think that was a real loss. I don't think he was as organized as if he was with his amount of talent. He could have conquered quite a few things. He did have an Alka-Seltzer commercial that was based on his cartoon-type characters that he made for that commercial, so there was some animation involved. That was, I think, in the late 60s, and it's a fun commercial. You can access that on YouTube pretty easily. Well, the weird thing is is that now I need to go look it up because I have this eerie feeling that Speedy Alka-Seltzer looks very wood-like now that you mention that. And I kind of wonder if maybe uh, Wally Wood was responsible for the creation of Speedy Alka-Seltzer. It is very Wood-like. And the funny thing is there's quite a few things in pop culture that is very Wood-like, like ElfQuest. And you had mentioned Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. Which ElfQuest was actually a ripoff of, and the Pennies both say this, they were going to do a comic, I believe for Marvel, of Wizards. And they got so good at what they were putting together, they said, why don't we just write our own story and do it for ourselves? And that's what they did. So, As far as Wally Wood's genius and him being able to apply his close to 20 years of experience in comics to creating this line of comic characters and being able to contract out work with the freelancers, putting out layouts, putting together an overall story, and having them do the penciling and him doing the finished inking. It looked like a really grand experiment by him to create this set of, like Jim mentioned, militarized heroes who really look great, possibly without as much of the fun dialogue to read, but look fantastic in action. It certainly doesn't have the dialogue the way that Stan Lee did it, but the plot points and the content, I think, took Marvel and then took it one step further because it unheroicized these guys. They were just working smuck, and I think that was a fascinating concept, such a wood concept, where you would have these guys, this was just their day job. This was like me going to court and coming home and taking my belt off, only it was a super-powered belt instead of my suit. And I love that concept that Dynamo, Lynn Brown, was really just a regular guy with girlfriend problems, similar to Peter Parker, except that his superhero job was the dull job that he had to go to, and he had to deal with problems at work. They just happened to be the Iron Maiden instead. And she was like the secretary that you're flirting with at work and you know you shouldn't be, which I don't do. But there's that aspect of this that I think was really unique. It also, in terms of writing, it has Menthor actually dying. And that's a really historical moment because it predates Pharaoh Lad's death in the Legion of Superheroes. Menthor dies in 1966. Pharaoh Lad doesn't die until 1967. This is back when superheroes dying actually meant something. And for decades, that was like a go-to was, well, Mentor actually dies and doesn't come back. That was a great story. Mentor was an undercover evil guy who redeemed himself through that sacrifice, and it made me connect with the character. So I felt just as sad as those people in that funeral scene at the end of that story. Not only that, but Mentor was one of the first anti-heroes in comics. 
because of that very thing. And that was something that we wouldn't see a lot of until the 1970s. That's where you have the Punisher, you have Wolverine, and a cast of other antiheroes that have seemed to dominate the cinema expansion of comic books in the last few years. Not just anti-hero, but psychotic to some degree. He had mental problems advanced by his powers, which is a common theme in Thunder Agents, too, because let's not forget Lightning, who also suffers by the use of his powers, because he ages each time he runs. I don't think any other company was doing this, so I think it was very original in terms of the concepts they were coming up with. And very adult, considering they still thought of kids as their prime audience. It is really easy to simplify and make your stories almost as useful as toilet paper when you know your end audience is 11 years old. But for them to keep it sophisticated and interesting, I think that's huge. And DC was really dumbed down quite a bit in this period compared to Marvel and Tower. They wound up having to up their game quite a bit because of these things. I think Tower Comic brought everybody up, including Marvel, to some degree, because these are sophisticated concepts. And then there's Iron Maiden and the sexual tension there. I don't think there's anything, even Black Widow at Marvel isn't doing as much of that kind of foreplay as Iron Maiden is doing with Dynamo. And the other thing, going back to art for a minute, is Wood is great in this, and what it shows is Wally Wood and Steve Ditko are such a natural pairing. They go from this to working together on canon, and there they do it too. They're almost in sync with each other. It's really something to see. Wood can do that with Ditko, and he, he can do it earlier in Challengers with Kirby. He's so good at melding his style with both the other two great of Kirby and Ditko. One thing I wanted to insert is Wood and Ditko also did a great pairing on Jungle Gym comic around the same time in the later 60s, and they look fantastic. Who's your favorite Thunder agent? Well, I like No Man a lot. I like the idea of, okay, cool, I'm going to just ditch this body because it sucks now. I'm going to go into another one, and it's over there. I like that concept. Phil? Overwhelmingly, No Man, but I also like Dynamo quite a bit. I love the fact that Wally Wood basically started the whole Excelsior thing, and then, of course, Dan, shockingly, stole it. I think No Man without a doubt, but for the very reasons Alex just described. How about yep. you, Jim? Same thing. I mean, No Man, to me, is the precursor to Marvel's The Vision in terms of just that creepiness of the artificial humanity of the android. I don't understand why No Man hasn't been used more. He would seem to be the real spinoff character that could have gone somewhere. He could have been used in a couple different genres of story as far as science fiction, but also as far as mystical comics like The Spectre or Dead Man or Doctor Strange. He could be used in those environments, too. He's a funny mix of astral and scientific robot, which is really unique in a character. And that more or less brings us to what happened to Steve Ditko besides Tower, and that is, of course, he went to Charlton Comics. Jim, I know Charlton is a favorite of both of ours, and Ditko's superhero work was only within a two- or three-year period, if that, once he went to Charlton. Well, that's slightly complicated because there's two phases of it, because he did Captain Adam in 1960. Right. His first superhero comic, by the way. Yes. And then he goes back after he leaves Marvel, and they reprint the first three issues of his original Captain Adam run, and then he does new material and gives them the new costume. 
he also brings a cast of villains that were worthy of Spider-Man, I think. Like, you had 13, you had the ghost, you had some really interesting characters. And trying to remember the guy with the eye on his chest, where he could, and not by eye, I mean a lowercase letter I, and he could run in and out of mirrors, and he taunted, oh, what's the female character? Nightshade. That was an interesting villain, and very evil, I thought. But Ditko really made his mark in Charlton in a lot of ways, but it never came to the same level of success as Marvel, did it, Jim? Well, no, they were abandoned in 67 and moved on to uh, licensed properties, both Hanna-Barbera and the King Features things. I think if he had stayed... You know, the problem is you associated Charlton with subpar work to some degree. They were the ones I would buy in bargain bags with a bunch of random books. They were not the ones that I would see on the stand at 7-Eleven when I went to get my comics. And they were the most poorly printed of all comic lines, too, I might add. I mean, you might get a whole page where half of it looks like a negative and then another page where you can't read half of the text. And that was a regular problem for Charlton, for me. I don't know. Did, have you ever noticed that, Alex? Well, I read mostly the reprints. I did look at some public domain images online, and they looked okay. But as far as the history of Charlton, when it was founded by Santangelo and Levy, they met in prison, and they were not the highest quality of character. But when they were making money off printing song lyrics, they decided to print magazines. And after a while, it just became cheaper to keep the printers running and make a comic line. So they were really just focused on just keeping the printers running because it was just cheaper. And by doing that in huge volumes and offering artists really low wages to just pump out product and just keep the printers running, they had low editorial interference, which attracted people who just wanted to do comics for fun or for quick $2. And so you have guys like Dick Giordano, who broke into comics through Charlton and was able to use that as his gateway to DC Comics later. When he was joined by Steve Ditko, after Ditko left Marvel, they were able to create a fun superhero line for a year and a half or so. They are some fun characters. Even Alan Moore read those and they inspired his Watchmen. He used his Captain Adam who became the Dr. Manhattan and then his Nightshade character, Captain Adam's girlfriend was Silk Spectre. The Blue Beetle became Night Owl and the question became Rorschach. And then you had a few others that other characters made like uh, what Judo Master and Thunderbolt who became Ozymandias. It's a fun line to read when you see them just trying to go for a new line of superhero glut like we've been talking about. It's a fascinating time, and what's interesting is the low editorial interference which attracted a guy like Ditko because he wanted to do his own thing in a lot of ways. Here's something interesting. You had Steve Skeets from Charlton, but he also worked at Tower. He and Ditko created Hawk and Dove for DC around the same time. They also created the Creeper, and I think I might be leaving another Ditko character out. Of course, there was Shade the Changing Man, but he wouldn't come for another six or seven years. That's a great story, by the way. It is great. And Ditko, in many ways, did a better job at D.C. than he did at Charlton. But he was probably paid more at D.C. He was given a lot more aplomb and a lot more of an audience, I believe. However, Hawk and Dove and Creeper both did not run very long. 
Steve Ditko had some interpersonal issues with the people he was creating Hawk and Dove with. I think they were arguing politics, and as he got more and more into the Ayn Rand philosophy, I think he was butting more heads at D.C. than he did at Charlton. If Charlton had not dropped the superhero line to adopt the licensed features that Jim was referring to, he may not have gone over to D.C. to make those characters and had to deal with people. And Jim, don't you think that we can say in this one case on Hawk and Dove that Steve Ditko's rather hawkish. No, but did you actually say that you thought that he did a better job at DC? Because I'm going to scream at that, and there's and there's a reason for it. Because okay, scream at me, Jim. Scream at me. Besides Doctor Strange and Spider-Man, and as much as I love the Creeper, I think that the question is probably his third most important contribution to comics, conceptually. It takes Will Eisner's spirit, and it turns him into something very, very different. And it's also, until he gets to Mr. A later, it's the embodiment of Didco's philosophy, the Ayn Randian objectivism. And he puts that in, and I think there's something about the question that is definitely a step above both Captain Adam and Blue Beetle in terms of a personal statement. And it's the pathway to him opening up to Mr. A and all of the avant-garde, more interesting work that he's done ever since then. The question is the gateway to that in my opinion. As far as 1966, Wallywood created his wits end fanzine or magazine in 1966, so that's another piece of him branching out. Back to Ditko, he did premiere his mystery character in issue three in 1967, and he also premiered his question character in Charlton in 1967, so he was really branching out that character. I think when he poured himself into Spider-Man, poured himself into the surreal world of Doctor Strange, I agree with Jim. I think that he really poured himself into the Mr. A, the question character in a very special, almost spiritual way. I find that interesting when Ditko does that in the 60s, although the 50s was his period of enlightenment as an artist. The 60s was his period of enlightenment as far as expression. Well, and he was quite prolific with the question. When DC acquired the Charlton characters, he would not do the question for DC. And I'm kind of shocked at that because I thought the main reason he never drew Doctor Strange and Spider-Man again was because he felt he got the shaft. But I've never read where he felt like he got the shaft from Charlton. I do believe since he created them for Charlton and DC then owned them, I believe he was probably held a grudge for that. Do you know anything about this, Jim? I've never read that he was offered the question. I believe it was an open-ended invitation. They didn't get the ownership of these characters until... Like, 85. Yeah, right around the time of Crisis. They only become integrated with the DC Universe post-Crisis. But Ditko was already back at Marvel and working like a madman. Ditko even co-created Squirrel Girl, and that wasn't even until the 90s. Speedball, Captain Universe... Yeah, he came up with some great ones for Marvel after that, which they've done very little with, except Speedball, I believe, is going to be showing up with Squirrel Girl in a new TV series, The New Warriors, if I'm not mistaken. If that happens, I'll watch it for sure. I would be surprised, Bill, if DC offered him, because all three of those characters were launched shortly after Crisis. Captain Adam, True. and it was being done by Pat Broderick, and Blue Beetle. And the question, especially, they seem to have revamped that character substantially. But that goes with one of the things I was saying. These characters actually have more interplay and are more important to DC history than either 
Creeper or Hawk and Dove. They also used Crisis as portal, so to speak, for the Charlton Earth to join, just like they did with Earth-S, the Fawcett Earth, with all the Captain Marvel, Bullet Man, all the Fawcett characters. They kind of allowed that to happen with Charlton, and I don't think a lot of people realize that Crisis was created to be able to join all these worlds so everybody could interact with each other. Nice. I never made that connection. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but it didn't happen until then, and that's another reason that was right around the time of Watchmen, like you were saying, and it seemed like Alan Moore was the only one who knew that DC had acquired Charlton at the time, and then everybody wanted a piece of it once Watchmen came out because they thought of all these characters as Watchmen characters in a weird way, don't you think? It's funny that you say that because there was a comic that another company did before DC acquired him. Wasn't it American comic, the Bill Black? Reading that, I thought to myself, oh, wow, this is going to be just like Watchmen. I'm so excited to read it. And I was disappointed that it had it was no resonance with Watchmen in any way. So they had the Captain Adam newer costume that Steve Ditko made, which I didn't find as interesting as his older costume. I almost felt like, although his older costume for Captain Adam that he made in 1960 was more similar to Jerry Robinson's Adam Man from the late 40s, I still feel like his first version of Captain Adam costume was more interesting to me, almost more Marvel-like in a way, because there was no cape. I felt like that was more interesting than that new one that was red, white, and blue, and I didn't like the newer costume as much. Oh, and I, I forgot something important. I, I said earlier that Cap, uh, Adam was Ditko's first superhero comic. I'm wrong. It was Golden Lad from the 50s, and Golden Lad, has, for some reason, has always reminded me of the early Captain Adam, costume-wise. I don't know why he had a cape, but the color combination and stuff was very similar and at the same time as Golden Lad came out, of course, John Buscema was doing Nature Boy. It's kind of funny <laughs> that two, two such big talents came out uh, from kind of crappy comics. From such odd gender-neutral characters. Right. My question about Golden Lad, so you're referring to the one that Mort Meskin did. Did Ditko assist him on a few of those? Yes. Is that what you're saying? So this was during his few months of working under the Kirby Simon team. Yes, and I believe Joe Kubert also worked with the three of them, and that's why the early Kubert stuff looks so Ditko and vice versa. But Kubert, of course, came up with a much more original look of his own, which I think Ditko's even more original, but I'm saying Kubert, you couldn't confuse Kubert with Ditko after, like, 1958, but you could before that. Don't you think so, Jim? Have you noticed the similarity? And I think it's because of Mark Meskin being both their mentors. Oh, I think everybody noticed the similarity. My understanding is they both hated to hear that pointed out. Neither one of them liked that comparison at all. Did they like each other? I don't even know. I don't know that they had a, a whole lot of interaction, actually. I can't think of where they would have worked together on even at the same place at the same time. And actually, that may be, it's possible because Kubert was doing some editing. They could have had something, but that was years later. I mean, that's, by that time, their styles have nothing in common. Now, as far as Charlton, have any of you guys read Thunderbolt or Judo Master or Peacemaker? 
Well, Peacemaker, of course, I know a little bit more about because of Pat Boyette, who I knew as a kid, and he used to be an anchorman here in San Antonio, and he decided to give it all up to be a comic artist, which I, I think is fantastic, especially when this was in the early days. I don't think anchorman got paid the enormous amount they get paid now, so it was probably an easier transition for him. Jim, would you explain your take on Peacemaker? The catchphrase, which was, I love peace so much I will kill for it. And it was very military, especially of the time. It reeks of Camelot. We're fighting for peace. That was probably evident to Pat because he was in San Antonio, which I don't know if you guys know this, but San Antonio is kind of the Air Force town, and there's eight military installations within San Antonio at the time. So there was a strong sense of the military here. So I think that might have played into why Pat kind of went in that direction. Because we talked about Watchmen, it's not so much that Alan Moore was inspired by these characters. Alan Moore wanted to use these characters. His treatment doesn't have these other names like Rorschach. His original treatment has the question, does this? DC said, we just bought these and you're going to break them where we can never use them again. So that decision is what inspired him to then turn them into something that I think becomes even more interesting. But his notion was to do something with those characters. He had a similar notion with the Crusaders that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where he wanted to do something with those and basically re-envision them as something darker that you couldn't use afterwards. Maybe the middle ground on that is Grant Morrison's just unbelievably good multiversity issue using the Watchmen character or the Charlton characters and capturing it where it was a combination between the notions that Moore gave, because it was a total homage to Watchmen, but it was actually using the Charlton characters themselves instead. That's amazing. Did, did, did either of you guys read that? Did they ever put that out in a hardbound or spiralbound total issue? Yeah, there's a hardbound of all of those issues. It takes those Charlton characters and puts them into the themes and what was happening, Moore was doing with Watchmen. And so it's a fascinating piece, and it's so well-informed in that it goes back to the early Charlton. So there's an allegory for Yellow Jacket, which is Charlton's very first superhero that was done in the mid-50s. Oh, that's fantastic. That's kind of funny because there, of course, is the yellow jacket from Marvel. So it, it's almost like, in your face, Marvel. Not the first yellow jacket. The uh, Fawcett stuff was quite good, too, wasn't it, Jim, in that series? Oh, the Doc Shaner Shazam book was fantastic. I enjoyed That's every was, issue. And it was quite good. I really enjoyed it a lot. For Morrison in general on that and his Seven Soldiers of Victory, it seems like Morrison gave DC outlines for how to be great and each time they would publish it and then ignore it and it's incredibly frustrating we should talk about on judo master the art was done by frank mclaughlin who i believe did inking subsequently on iron fist or or um shang chai but yes, he did, but he basically started out with Ditko, if I'm not mistaken. He was heavily influenced by uh, Ditko in many ways. But he was the art director at this point at Charlton for the Action Heroes. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Well, his artwork is fantastic, and he's seldom mentioned, so I'm glad we mentioned him here. Wasn't he a martial artist himself? That would be my guess. It seems no coincidence that he would have done Kung Fu-style comics at both publishing houses. I think both Don McGregor and Mike Barron are, and they both did extensive scripting for those characters as well. Well, with that, we're going to trip on over to 
our third comic company that we're talking about today, and that would be Harvey Comics, known, of course, for Casper the Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich, Baby Huey, Wendy the Witch, Little Lotta, my personal favorite, and Little Dot. They also decided, thanks to Joe Simon, to come up with their own comic universe, which lasted about as long as all the others we've mentioned, with the exclusion of DC and Marvel in that three-year period. Jim, you know quite a bit about Harvey. What can you tell us about this part? Yeah, Jim is known for his passion for Harvey Comics. I read a lot, a lot of Harvey in my time, but it was all Richie Red and Hot Stuff and those. I never picked up a single issue of any of these action books. Something I would want to give some background on is Al Harvey, who was Joe Simon's friend from the 1940s, made a few great business decisions when he forayed into creating his own comic company, would refer to Joe Simon a lot for help throughout the years on making various comics. When the superhero glut was going on, there was a mention of contracting Joe Simon, who was obviously very famous for creating or co-creating Captain America, to bring some superheroes to their line to jump on the bandwagon, so to speak. That was what the Harvey Thriller comics were about. And something notable there was contracting Jim Steranko to help design his Spy-Man comic. There were a few other things because he was also able to bring in Jigsaw, Tiger Boy, Piranha, people that we don't care about now, but still interesting as part of the superhero glut. He was also bringing in Fighting American, who he had created with Jack Kirby as well. Didn't they bring in the spirit also, Jim? Uh, yeah. For one issue. Was that a reprint book? I believe it was. I believe for the most part it was. It might have been some reworking, so it didn't seem so 40s, but uh, I believe for the most part, yes. There were classic episodes. And was Fighting America also reprinted at that time, right? Uh, some, but not much. The only reason they did that was because Marvel was doing that, and they wanted to give their heroes a little bit more history and context like Marvel had been doing. With Captain America? Right, and with Namor and Human Torch, because this was right around the same time that Toro showed up, the original Human Torch sidekick, in a Fantastic Four annual, and then he goes supernova at the end and kills himself. And, of course, the vision, I believe there was a, a strong vibe. You can see Fighting American without Jack Kirby in those Harvey Thriller Fighting American comics, and it's nowhere near as engaging for me, or I think for a lot of readers. I think missing that Kirby element doesn't even make sense for that character, because what made that character so great, and actually more popular than Captain America at the time in the early 50s, was the Kirby action, the Kirby jumping out of the page action dynamic that everybody loved seeing. And to see Fighting American in those Harvey Thriller Silver Age comics without the Jack Kirby imprint doesn't even make sense for the character for me. I think that, among other reasons of it being a lackluster line, led to its demise. I have absolutely no love lost for Joe Simon. I think he ripped off Kirby. He was talented, but I think he was talented in a much lesser way. And anything he did without Kirby that he had originally had Kirby on completely sucked. And Bill speaks for himself and not for comic book historians as a legal entity. Thanks, Alec. Well, I just think Joe gets way too much credit. I think Joe Simon was more of a businessman, great with connecting with people, great with making deals, great with networking, branching out, which I think Jack Kirby needed that aspect to go out there beyond his shelled-in place at Victor Fox Comics. 
I think the fact that he shunned and told Steranko he'd never work in comics again, and then Steranko goes right over to Marvel and takes over S.H.I.E.L.D. and does some prophetic work, and the fact that Steranko has done less than 100 total issues of comic, and yet he's over and over again considered one of the top 10 comic creators of all time. That says a lot about him, and the fact that Joe Simon couldn't see that, that, I don't know. Sometimes that happens in comics where Vince Coletta said the same to Joe Rubenstein, who is one of the greatest inkers of the 80s, I think. Absolutely. And far better than Vince Coletta. Right. These things happen in comics, but at the same time, these guys are part of the historical record, and they did do things. We, we can't say they didn't. They did. I have a question, Alex, for you in relation to Harvey. Is this a rare example of a company using creator-owned characters without taking ownership of them? Because Simon does own some of these characters as it's being published, right? Yes, but I think that's also a product of Joe Simon's more than 20-year friendship with Al Harvey by this point. They had been close friends and associates and had worked together when Al Harvey had gone from lowly working in comics to elevating himself up to this big corporate position, and Joe Simon was part of his contacts towards success. So there was a special arrangement there that I don't think would have been extended to just the average artist on the street at that time. Uh, in terms of the concept of... An artist owning their own work. Yeah, that was really rare for the time. That's all I was thinking, that to not own the character, but to be publicizing that character seemed like something that was a, a real rarity. It's definitely a rarity in those days. But Will Eisner did that a couple decades before with his uh, spirit for the newspapers. So did Bob Kane. Because Bob Kane's dad got lawyers for him. He didn't own Batman, but he got a sweeter deal than any of the other creators of the time. Yeah, and there was certainly an interest that he did own, and we're going to talk about this in our DC episode, but that factored into DC selling Turkini in 1968. They needed to sort out the Bob Kane ownership situation first, but that's not outright ownership, but it's close. And so, of course, within a few years, Harvey decided, you know what, we're going to stick to friendly ghosts and rich kids, and uh, we're going to get rid of this uh, not non-performing superhero line. And they did, and until they did Super Richie a few years later, uh, they never revisited the superhero genre. And that brings us to this week's favorite segment in my mind, and that would be our weekly rants, where Alex, Jim, and I tell you what's really kicking us off this week about comics. So we start with Alex this week. Alex, tell us, what is your rant? Well, I would say mine's probably not so much uh, taking off, but more of an interesting thing where I was looking into the whole question of 1941 Red Raven Comics number 1, where there was that character in it, Mercury, and they said that it was done by Martin Burstyn. Then, I guess in 1968, there was Marvel Superheroes 14, where they write a backstory that that's just a pen name for Jack Kirby. Then what's interesting is how that then, in 1970, in Steranko's History of Comics, he says again that that was a pen name for Kirby, and then that was repeated in a, uh, an issue of Foom uh, in 1975 that that was just a pen name for Kirby. And then in 1990, Joe Simon released his book, Comic Book Makers, and actually clarified that Martin Burstyn was a real guy who actually grew out into the real geopolitical world and actually wrote his own book about Jewish immigration away from communism. And I find that just one little slip-up in comic history and in the record can make an entire falsity for like a couple decades till someone comes out and actually 
says, no, that's not the case. So I just find that really interesting that just as we try to describe things, we should always kind of be careful about assuming and find that as an interesting lesson that everyone should know about. Well, that's a wonderful rant in a really sweet way, actually, Alex. And that brings us to Jim, who I'm guessing is going to be a little less sweet. Jim, what's your rant this week? Yeah, I'm steaming, Bill. I, I, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's what's coming out of my computer. It's steam from Jim. We, we've we been talking for weeks now about superheroes in 1966. What was the best selling company selling the most books during 1966? Okay, I'm going to guess DC. Archie by a mile. The Archie book were tremendous sellers during this period, and we as historians tend to ignore that. We also tend to ignore the master class artists that probably understood the comic form better than anybody, specifically the three, Dan DiCarlo and Sam Schwartz, who did the Jughead books, probably more than either Harry Lucci. These were masters of the form. And I'm reading a book right now by the comic scholar Bart Beatty called 12 Cent Archie that is fantastic and informative about this. And because we had Sam Swartz as a major player in Tower, I just wanted to bring that up, the significance of Archie and how we need to rectify this and talk about that line's work and historical achievements. Well, that's fascinating, and that is a good rant. My rant is against fanboys. And I'm talking to all of you out there, be it young, old, whatever. But so many fanboys get their ideas conflicted on things they don't even know yet. And the reason I say that is because I love the Inhumans. And everybody had stuck a stake in its heart, the TV series, I mean. Everyone had stuck a stake in its heart before it even began and really crippled its chance of continuing, I think. Uh, Although the ratings are very good, I just watched the fourth episode, and I have to say it is splendid, it's enjoyable, and it may be my favorite Marvel TV series as of yet. And I I don't know if you guys have seen it. I, I believe you have, but it's fantastic, and it really was, I think, scandalous that everybody wrote it off before they even saw one episode because... I don't like Medusa's hair. They're not wearing masks. And, you know, that really irritates me because it's a fantastic show. And it's really, it's true to the characters. And I think Lockjaw is uh, amazingly animated. And that's my rant. I don't know what, what do you guys think about it? Have you guys seen it? I completely agree, and I love it. I feel like they captured the Jack Kirby-ness of the Inhumans perfectly. I feel like Karnak makes, to me, more sense as an Asian guy, just because of his whole martial arts approach. And he's quite the ladies' man, too, if you've noticed. He uses his hands for that, as we all know. The K-spot, as it were. And, Jim, have you seen it? No. Why? Because of the comics? Because Marvel... Their resentment about not owning the X-Men, they they basically turned... See, so you guys don't read the current comics, do you? No, but I will say that I did read a little bit of Inhumans about a year ago. Something I do want to express, Jim, for you and all the Jack Kirby fans, is that this series is more like the the 1960s Jack Kirby and humans rather than anything coming out of them now. That's what I look at it as. I, I get that. And, I, and it's just that the, the way Marvel has, Marvel is selling the Inhumans because 
of their animosity toward the X-Men, and with that comes their animosity toward Fantastic Four, and I'm just done with the influences between the comics and the TV and film projects to a degree that it soured me on, on the notion. But I'll give it a try. There you go. I hate the Inhumans as what they are in Marvel Comics right now. And just wanted to throw out there that Jim speaks for himself and not for comic book historians as a legal entity. Yes, we need a special episode on that, on, on that and Jim Simon. Yeah, uh, stay tuned for our special disclaimer episode of Comic Historians, where it's nothing but an hour of us apologizing for everything and disavowing it at the same time. I, I, I just want to say that. Bill, uh, you shouldn't have called Joe Simon an inhuman. That was going too far. I Okay, oops, did I say that? I didn't, actually, folks. Yeah. And it cracks me up when I get Jim's ire up, because you're so low-key, and then... But me, I will say, I do incorporate what both you guys are saying. I'm the in-betweener, you know, between order and chaos. You're the in-betweener, and we'll rant. It's a, sex, it's a sex thing, too, I think. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Good point. Jim, uh, I don't know if anyone else knows this, but in the snuff films, Jim is otherwise known as Chainsaw. <laughs> I do think that we need to bring this episode to a close, and I, I have to say this is one of my favorite episodes. We really touched on things in a nice way and wrapped it up with three very good rants. And I'd like to thank my co-hosts, as usual, the amazing Alex Grand. Alex, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. And, of course, jovial Jim Thompson. <laughs> Jim, Jim, boy, thank you very much this week. And I am... The, what's it, what, okay, you guys get to name me since I just named We you. already have, Bill. <laughs> oh no, oh no. And that of course can't be said over the, over a podcast, but, uh, I'll, I'll say the BS and Bill Field. No, I don't BS. I, I only say the facts here, folks. I only say the facts. But I want to thank you guys and thank you for listening to us for the last hour. I'm Bill Field and this has been once again the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Goodbye, folks.